ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Jonathan Tepperman, FP's editor-at-large, and you're listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. My job on this show each week is to help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, I'm featuring a show called Into Africa, which was launched in 2018 by the Center for Strategic and International Studies. What I really liked about the episode we're featuring today is how it does just that in an unexpected way by discussing the role musicians can play in politics and in advocacy. The episode Sati Sol on making pop music during a pandemic features one of East Africa's biggest pop bands and their thoughts on topics such as Africa's music industry, Kenya's healthcare system, and police brutality throughout the continent. Here's more from the host of Into Africa and the director of the Africa program at CSIS, Judd Devermont. Well, I spent 16 years in government, primarily in, in as an intelligence analyst. So when I left government in 2018, I was just bursting at the seams, right, to finally talk about African politics and policy um, in a public way. And, you know, when we thought about putting together Into Africa, uh, we sort of used as a shorthand that it was ESPN's Pardon the Interruption meets your favorite Spotify playlist, right? I really wanted to have kind of a rapid fire going through a couple of topics, then doing a deep dive on a bigger story, uh, but also having it infused with conversations about music and movies and African pop culture, in part because I think that that's uh, unexplored in the traditional conversations here in Washington, D.C., that Africans are exerting more and more soft power. And how do we relate to it? How do we engage with it? How do we navigate it? And how do Africans use it more effectively to shape foreign policy outcomes was really important. So the season premiere is always my friend Lauren Blanchard, who's at the Congressional Research Service, uh, Demola Durasoma, who is an affiliate of ours and used to work for OK Africa, and we reached out to Sati Sal, which is really the biggest uh, band in East Africa. Uh, they're Kenyan. I really like Sati Sal, and they have a single that I think is fantastic called Short and Sweet, and they had just released a new album. Uh, but COVID-19 threw a spanner uh, in the works, and so they had to cancel some concerts. So they talk, I think, honestly about that. And then how do they navigate uh, fighting and talking about um, police brutality and corruption while being uh, a successful music group. So I think that your audience will really enjoy the conversation, the insights uh, in all three of the sections, but particularly with Sati Sal. 
And that was Judd Devermont. Here now is the episode Sati Sal on making pop music during a pandemic from the podcast Into Africa. Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Sudan's transition enters its third year. What's the scorecard so far? And musician Sleep Keita has joined the transitional government in Mali. What does it mean for his legacy and his causes? Plus, we welcome East Africa's biggest band, Sati Sal, to the start of our third season. We talk about the pandemic and how to navigate Kenyan politics. So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. In mid-December, the Sudanese marked the two-year anniversary of the revolution that led to the overthrow of Omar al-Bashir. On the second anniversary of Sudan's revolution, which led to the overthrow of longtime President Omar al-Bashir, thousands poured to the streets of the capital and other states. Some came out to voice support for the 15-month-old transitional government, others to voice anger at the economic and political developments. What is the current state of the transition? Joining me to discuss Sudan and other topics are Lauren Blanchard, an African specialist at the Congressional Research Service, Damola Durasomo, a culture writer, journalist, and CSIS senior associate, and Sati Sal, East Africa's biggest pop band. Lauren and Damola, welcome back. It has become the tradition of this show uh, to have both of you on our season premiere. And I'm really excited about this episode, in particular because we have Sati Sal, one of my favorite bands, joining us. But first, let's talk about Sudan. Lauren, can you bring us up to speed? What's happening with the political transition? What progress has been made? And in your mind, what are the big challenges ahead? Thanks, Judd. And thanks for having us again. It's great to kick off this this new season. So things are dynamic as ever in Sudan. Things are very different from where they were back at the beginning of 2019, sort of the height of the protest movement before President Bashir was overthrown in April. And since then, we've gone through quite a roller coaster ride. So we're now uh, well over a year into the power sharing agreement between civilians who led that protest movement and the military and security forces. Um, and it's a pretty awkward marriage, but it seems to be going along uh, and, and sort of outwardly, at least. Generally, civilians sort of speak about a positive relationship with the military, but there are, there are signs of strain, obviously. There have been a number of reforms, you know, political prisoners released. I think, you know, one of the, the big dynamics that I think we're still sort of trying to figure out how it's going to affect the transition is this peace agreement that was signed in August with some, but not all, of the rebel groups. And so that's going to sort of change the dynamics and structure and personality of the transitional government. But how it does so is still a little unclear. The um, rebel leaders and representatives haven't quite moved into their spots yet. The constitution needs to be changed. A legislature that was supposed to be established over a year ago still hasn't been stood up. They keep promising us any day now. So still a lot of questions. Big outstanding demands from the protest movement include justice and accountability. There's still a lot left to be done, but there's promise in discussions between the government and the ICC 
over the possible transfer and trial of some very senior figures, including President Bashir, for war crimes, crimes against humanity related to the Darfur conflict. A point of clarification. So what I understand is when they brought in some of the former rebels, that put another year on the clock for the transition. And it seems that there's been a lot of back and forth from the Sovereignty Council chairman, Burhan, about what a superstructure would look like that incorporates them. Those are some of the the issues that have been now injected into the process. Is that right? That's right. And by the time your your show airs, we may know more. But as I mentioned, the Constitution hasn't been amended yet to incorporate the peace agreement. So we do know that a year has been added to the 39-month period that was to be the transitional government. But how that affects some key dates is still a little unclear. Roughly halfway through the transition, uh, the leadership of the Sovereign Council, which is as a body the head of state, although its leader really acts as head of state, that leadership was supposed to transition from a military leader, General Burhan, to a civilian on the council. There's still a little bit of uncertainty about what the extension of the transitional period does to that timeline uh, and whether there could even be sort of a division of, of three parts to the transition such that perhaps one of the rebel leaders would hold that position for some period of time. So a lot of unknowns. I really I'm glad that you you started with the domestic challenges, because I feel like in the, the past two years, we've been, at least here in Washington, so focused on Sudan's foreign relations, right? It sits at the crossroads of Africa, the Middle East and Europe. It's incredibly important. And so that's meant that we've talked a lot about the U.S. relationship, the Israeli relationship, Russian bases, and then, of course, its relationship with Ethiopia and Egypt over the dam, and then Ethiopia in light of the conflict in, in Tigray. But maybe it would be helpful, Lauren, to talk a little bit about the U.S.-Sudan relationship, because the state sponsor of terror designation has finally been been lifted. There is still this issue around the legal peace legislation. I hope you could kind of explain to our audience why that is so important and what do you think will be the benefits of this relationship now that we've gotten SST out of the way? Sure. So so obviously the lifting of the state sponsor of terrorism designation, which became official on December 14th, is is a major development in the relationship and, and, and somewhat symbolic, but also obviously has practical implications in terms of the lifting of some sanctions and the way that it will facilitate U.S. support for Sudan at uh, the World Bank and the IMF and sort of help Sudan move forward in its quest for debt relief. But the U.S. relationship with Sudan has has really sort of dramatically changed in the last two years. Obviously, you know, there was some re-engagement even under uh, the Bashir regime towards towards the end of the Bashir regime. But things have become, uh, you know, significantly better with some caveats. You know, I think it's interesting. There was a lot of rhetorical support from Washington uh, for the transition and for civilian leadership of government. There have been some complicating factors, aid restrictions being one of them. Uh, and then this interesting dynamic with Israel and the Trump administration's effort to facilitate a peace deal, normalization of relations between Sudan and Israel as part of its broader Abraham Accords efforts. And so I think much to the dismay of many Sudanese and some Sudan watchers outside, 
there was a linking of the two processes, the the state sponsor of terrorism delisting, the normalization of basically relations with the United States, along with the relations with Israel. And so that's a complicated mix of issues. And then add on top of that, one of the demands of Sudan has been that along with its removal from the state sponsor of terrorism list, that it have its sovereign immunity restored in the United States. Complicated set of legal issues there, but basically the United States has a law called the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which states basically that foreign governments cannot be sued in the United States. There are some exceptions to that, particularly for countries that are designated as state sponsors of terrorism. So that allows victims of terrorism in the United States uh, and those working as employees of the United States to sue state sponsors of terrorism in U.S. courts. The most notable of that effort has been the lawsuit by uh, victims of the 1998 East Africa embassy bombings. They had over $10 billion in damages awarded to them in U.S. courts. And so that's been something that Sudan and the U.S. government and the, the victims and their lawyers have been negotiating for a number of years. Also, the USS Cole complicating that are some outstanding claims uh, that are still working their way through the courts by victims of 9-11. And so that's really sort of led to some very difficult negotiations between Congress, Sudan, and the United States government about how to restore Sudan's sovereign immunity while addressing the outstanding claims. And as we speak, we're sort of awaiting a word from Congress on whether or not they can agree to a deal on restoring Sudan's sovereign immunity. If that doesn't happen this year, it can happen next year. It does need to happen within a year of the bilateral claims agreement between the United States and Sudan or the over $350 million that Sudan has set aside to pay victims of the embassy bombings that will revert back to Sudan and we'll have to start this process all over again. Okay, so by the time this episode airs in early January, we may or may not know if this issue has been resolved. Right. Okay, so let's... Uh, stay tuned. Yeah, we'll stay tuned, exactly. One last thing, Joe Biden will become the president on the 20th of January. His to-do list is going to be so long. But uh, of course, when it comes to Africa, Sudan and these greater Horn of Africa issues, including Ethiopia, will have to be at the top of the inbox. And um, I just wanted to get your thoughts. If there was you know, one or two things that you would recommend to the new team to think about or to focus on when it comes to Sudan, what would you tell them? Sudan is in a really interesting place right now. Obviously, its its own transition, I think, is important for U.S. foreign policy, both in terms of Africa and sort of the broader region. Sudan's role in the region is also important. You mentioned the, the conflict in Ethiopia, and Sudan's uh, prime minister is currently the head of EGAD, the regional, regional body for East Africa. And, and EGAD has a really sort of impossible task at the moment, and that is trying to figure out how to deal with a, a number of overlapping tensions in the region among states. You've got the conflict in Ethiopia, in which we have uh, reports the State Department says are credible that Eritrean troops are involved. 
You have separately next door a tiff between Kenya and Somalia, in part, but not entirely, over Kenya's recent welcome of Somaliland's President Bihi, and I think Somalia's sort of concern over where Kenya may take the relationship with the semi-autonomous region of Somaliland. There are tensions between Ethiopia and Sudan. There were some clashes recently. There is the ongoing discussions over the Grand Renaissance Dam, ongoing conflict and uh, sort of unimplemented pieces of the peace agreement in South Sudan. There will also have been, uh, presumably, by the time the Biden administration is taking office, uh, elections in Uganda, and we'll be in the midst of election season in Somalia. So a lot going on. One of the top things I think that they'll have to grapple with is the Trump administration's decision to pull troops out of Somalia and whether or not the Biden administration will send those troops back in. These are all things that the Biden administration is going to have to sort out in pretty quick order. And then, you know, more broadly, helping African countries uh, deal with the economic and other impacts, humanitarian as well, of COVID-19 and what they're going to do about debt relief and restructuring discussions. That is a long, a long list, but we'll make sure that we continue to cover those issues on this podcast and with our analysis on our website and our events. So, th- My name's Kurt Jaimungle. And this is the Theories of Everything podcast. The show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness. Exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God. Even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in theories of everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. Thanks, Lauren, for that. I want to switch to another transition, this time in Mali. I don't think this transition gets as high marks, even if they're caveated, as Sudan. And that is because the military that overthrew the government of Ibaka has been pretty reluctant to share the transition with the civilians. And right now we understand that 13 out of the 20 regions in Mali are being run by military officers. The military has the lion's share of seats in the National Transitional Council. And one of the coup leaders is actually the president of this council. One of the key figures behind the August coup has been chosen for top post. Colonel Malik Dio has been unanimously elected to lead the interim legislative body, the National Transition Council. This despite concerns over the military's continued influence in the country. We have written about this in a new paper called Rethinking a Near Decade of Crisis Responses in the Sahel, so I encourage our listeners to check that out. But today I want to talk about one of the most unusual appointments to the Transitional Council, and that's musician Salif Keita. Damola, who is Salif Keita and why do you think he was picked uh, to join the council? Hi, Judd. Thanks for having me. So Salif Keita is pretty much a big deal in the music scene. He's one of Mali's most renowned musical artists. He's nicknamed the Golden Voice of Africa. He's been nominated for multiple Grammys, and he's also an artist living with albinism, and thus has become a big international advocate for those living with the condition in Africa. 
I believe his status, of course, has a lot to do with this appointment. You know, he's arguably one of the most famous people in the country, and he was openly critical of the previous regime. So I do believe that this is sort of a tactical move on behalf of this military transitional government to perhaps maybe save a bit of face and maybe gain some popular support amongst the people, given um, Keita's status and the fact that he's so endeared to a lot of people in Mali. Yeah, it definitely seems like a way to encourage or to borrow a little bit of, of Keita's popularity for this military government. And it's not like we haven't seen this in the past, right? I mean, the three of us have talked to Bobby Wine, you know, twice now. There are rappers and singers who have won legislative elections in Kenya, in Tanzania, in South Africa. One of my favorite Afrobeats artists, Banky W, at least tried to win a seat in Nigeria. And of course, there's Yusu Endure, who served as the Minister of Culture at the start of uh, Macky Sall's first term. But I guess those are a little bit different. I mean... Salif Keita is now borrowing or lending some of his legitimacy to the transition. And if it goes sideways, I guess I wonder, Damola, if that is going to be a problem for him and his popularity. And on the other hand, the good news part of the story is, could he use his new position to push some of these issues that are really important to him, such as, you know, albinism in Africa? How do you think this is going to affect his career and some of the causes that he's known for? Well, I do think Keita is in a different position as some of the previously mentioned artists. You know, he's 71. I think he's genuinely less concerned with his musical career right now and the trajectory of it because he's already so established and is pretty much actually retired, you know. So he's sort of past that phase of wanting to promote himself in that way. But I do think it could pose a risk to his legacy, especially if his role continues to expand within this transitional government and it turns into something that the people are displeased with and they're unhappy with. And sort of, you know, he's known as this really big world music icon. So, you know, his reputation in the West can certainly be tainted if it turns out that he's a supporter of military rule and that the transfer to civilian rule doesn't happen in the way that it should, you know, and he has famously said that he doesn't believe that democracy is actually for Africa in the past. So that sort of gives you an idea of where his politics lie and where his perceptions of him can change based on how he moves within this role. So I do think, you know, even though all of that exists, I do believe that him being appointed as someone with albinism, though, is majorly important because we've seen very little political representation for people with albinism across Africa. And, you know, given his past history of really advocating for this group, I can only imagine that he'll continue to push for and, you know, advocate passionately for them within the governmental spheres. That makes a lot of sense. So something that we'll, we'll definitely watch his tenure and he, I presume he'll get a considerable amount of press if he makes any statements or uh, depending on his engagements. I, I think one of the subtexts of the three sessions that we have done and I just demola the things that you and I have been talking about over time is the role of musicians in politics. That's what the conversation we had with Bobby Wine. We are going to talk a little bit about that next with Sati Saul. I'd love to get your thoughts on where do you think the trend line is? And for our audience that includes many foreign policy practitioners, 
how do you deal with musicians that are in politics? How do you engage in a way that sort of is productive, maybe doesn't look like you're out of touch, and that also, I think, allows you to connect with the broader public? I don't know if you've thought about those issues, but I, I'd love to hear your your thinking. Yeah, you know, a little bit. I mean, I definitely think that we're going to see more of the musician turned politician, especially as more civilian movements continue to occur across the continent. Fame and celebrity has a unique type of currency in Africa. And, you know, I think people with large platforms are going to realize that they can use it to connect with people and to address some of their needs through politics, and that almost if they don't, they might actually get called out for not doing so because people feel that they have a responsibility given their status. And we sort of saw with the response to the NSARS movement that any artist that wasn't taking a political stance was getting called out and, you know, canceled for the lack of a better term. So it's a big deal. I do think it people see it as irresponsible if artists aren't engaged politically. So I definitely think we're going to see more of this going forward. As for, you know, diplomats, U.S. diplomats, I think they just need to be sure to be attuned to all of this. Artists have always been cultural ambassadors, and I think that's going to increase as politics and culture become more intertwined in an African context. So it would definitely behoove them and benefit them to be aware of what's going on right now. Culturally, I think they should be familiar with the biggest artists because they need them to sort of further their missions and enact policy. Artists and celebrities play a big role in that nowadays on the continent. I don't know if this would surprise you, but the UK is actually pretty good at this, or I, I would say at least I've seen some high commissioners do this well. I think it was last year where the high commissioner to Ghana had this engagement with Mr. Easy. And they put it on Instagram and it was huge. I mean, it was just a smart play. They talked about issues that were both important to Mr. Easy, but also to the, the high commission. You rarely see that from U.S. diplomats, but uh, I think they're, that's exactly where we have to go. I agree completely. And I think the year of return that happened in Ghana was another good example of this. We did see like a lot of, you know, U.S. ambassadors sort of involved and just U.S. celebrities taking part and, you know, trying to build this bridge between Black Americans and Ghanaians. And the power of celebrity definitely influences the way people move and think politically and in terms of foreign policy. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I forgot about that. That's right. So there was strong U.S. support for the year of return. And sometimes it doesn't have to be the U.S. diplomat, particularly if he or she is quite awkward and isn't into Afrobeats or whatever. But, you know, just facilitating that connection between American pop stars and celebrities and, uh, you know, Africa's incredibly vibrant music scene can be successful. I mean, even in NSARS, it was American artists, African-American artists primarily. And this is the case true with the Zimbabwe Lives Matter, who were doing almost all of the cultural diplomacy because the administration wasn't. Precisely. We're very excited to welcome my favorite East African band, Sati Sol, to Into Africa. 
It's been a tradition on our podcast for our season premieres to talk to musicians about their role in politics and advocacy. And Sati Soul has been releasing chart-topping records for more than a decade. My favorite is the single Short and Sweet, that was from 2018. But I'm sure you've heard To Live and Die in Africa, or maybe Susanna off the new record Midnight Train. We sent a series of questions to the guys, and I'm just really grateful that despite the holidays and a very busy schedule, they were able to send back answers to our questions. So the first question we sent to Savara, which is about the pandemic. How has it affected the Kenyan music industry, particularly the ability to record and perform? You know, has it been difficult to promote Midnight Train? And then we were curious about how this affects the band's ability to engage with fans. Yeah, the pandemic has been like a shutdown to all of us, you know, to all our intentions and everything. So it's been hard to like just have one-on-one with fans, you know, like direct kind of contacts movement you know as musicians you know also like in terms of expressing art has been a little bit challenging but on the flip side the pandemic has also brought about reinvention because so many people have been able to go online some artists who are not online have been able to do social media doing live facebook live instagram live whatever live you know just to get a bigger audience because now you know you can only when you're one-on-one you know you can only do as much but when you're online you can get even like six as six stadiums as much as you can it's endless you know what i'm trying to say so i just feel like it's how you look at it so the pandemic has made us also be able to reinvent ourselves look for other ways to do business in terms of being online merchandise how you're able to interact with fans and make money you know so i think it has opened a lot of uh, boxes that we were sitting on and i feel like as musicians the best just thing to do is just try as much as possible and reinvent do whatever you can just stay positive and work your way through this the ones that's going to survive are the ones that are going to be solid enough to be able to take on the challenges the second question we sent to polycop which was about testing during the pandemic the state of kenya's healthcare system and the role of frontline workers during this crisis why is it important for the band to press for reform and model responsible behavior? Yes, yes, we have always been very vocal about the importance of um, getting tested, um, especially when you feel you have certain symptoms or you feel maybe you might have been exposed to someone who tested positive or is displaying the symptoms of COVID. So being in the position that we are in in society, we always try to urge the people to, you know, take the step to be more responsible for themselves and for the health of the people around them, especially the elderly who are very vulnerable in this case. With regards to the health system, the COVID situation has really shaken a lot of medical fraternities all over the world and not just in Kenya. And of course, we've had cases here where there were not enough spaces in hospitals. We didn't have enough PPEs to provide to the doctors that are in direct contact to patients that have tested positive and are in critical condition. So they also are very susceptible to getting infected. Yeah, so we always try to keep the government on toes, just always pointing out these issues that are there and for them to really step up and be able to provide for the doctors. And it's sad that we've had a number of doctors who've contracted COVID and uh, some of them have passed away. That is really sad and it is something that is avoidable. So we always have to keep our government in check when it comes to you know such things. Again, with the power that we have, the influence that we have 
on the people. Yeah, so I, I mean, it's getting to a point where it's slowly, slowly improving, but definitely the government can do 10 times better than what they're doing right now. And it is up to us to always be on their case and make sure that they are able to provide all that they need to provide to the doctors and to the hospitals to curb this pandemic. The third question we sent to Chimano, we wanted to hear his thoughts on the band's outspoken positions on police brutality and corruption. Curious about what that meant uh, for the band as they ventured into politics and how do they stay true to their convictions without losing fans or attracting unwanted attention from the government? Speaking about politics can be very, it's a, you know, it's a double-edged sword, really. But honestly, though, if, you know, about police brutality, it's something that affects all of us. These are people who are supposed to protect and serve, people who are paid from the exchequer, people who you shouldn't run away when you see a policeman. So they are human beings. And also, of course, it comes into question what they are, we are human beings. What comes into question is, you know, what kind of training do they go through? And hopefully someday we will be able to bridge that gap where police officers are seen as human beings and they also see us as human beings. Regarding politics, at some point you do have to make a stand. It's for you to be honest with yourself and for you to understand the risks involved. But if it's making a stand and doing what is right, to us that is more important than just going with the flow. The final question we sent to Ben Ami. Most U.S. listeners know about Sati Sal. Perhaps they know about when they had the dance-off with President Obama during his 2015 trip to Kenya. Now, Obama has this special license as a U.S. president of Kenyan descent, but we wanted to hear from the band about how they engage with other U.S. diplomats and leaders. And how do you recommend that these sorts of diplomats and public figures connect with African publics through music or film or TV or literature. We wanted to hear if there was any best practices and maybe any things that they should avoid. Dancing with uh, President Obama was amazing, amazing. You know, it was a blessing. We're very thankful. We had wanted to meet him before the end of his presidency. And lo and behold, he came to Kenya and the, and the opportunity to meet him arose and we took it. Other diplomats do engage us and do engage other artists in many, many, many ways. And of course, through their cultural attaches as well, more discussions move on from there. It can be different things from, you know, cultural exchanges, maybe different programs that different artists, you know, you, you maybe travel or under commission or under an embassy or the attaches office here, you know, like you either travel, do a little tour. So many, so many opportunities with exchange, with cultural exchanges have happened. And as well, sometimes through funding, actually a lot through funding, especially to fund some programs in film and some programs in music as well. And also creating films and watching films from each other's places or countries. So yes, I would say right, right now with Afropop or Afrobeat being at the center stage and giving the attention it deserves, there's a lot more awareness of different African acts from different countries. There's a lot more artists who are getting the recognition they deserve, and which is, which is wonderful to say and to see. And that was the episode Sati Sal on making pop music during a pandemic from the podcast Into Africa. It was first released in January of this year. I want to thank Judd Devermont and the Center for Strategic and International Studies for sharing the podcast with us. 
For more information about Into Africa and to find other shows from the Centre, check out their website at csis.org. Meanwhile, thanks as always for listening to FP Playlist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. If you want to recommend another great podcast you think we should feature, please email me at podcast at foreignpolicy.com. And for more information about FP Podcasts, please check out our website, foreignpolicy.com, or join our Facebook group. I'm Jonathan Tepperman. I'll see you again soon. Thanks. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.